everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. I'm your host, Manoj Tandon, and today we are honored to have Sean Sweeney join us. Uh, Sean is a very special guest. He's a frequent author and speaker on the subject of cybersecurity. He currently leads the field CISO and Cloud Security Advisor Group within Oracle North America Cloud Engineering. Uh, Sean joined Oracle from Microsoft, where he was the Global Chief Security Advisor. He has held the CISO position at the University of Pittsburgh. He's been the CTO of a legal technology and e-discovery startup, CIO of a national law firm, and litigation support applications manager for the U.S. Department of Justice. He's got an illustrious resume, a lot of knowledge, uh, and he started his career as a database administrator for ExxonMobil, so he's come a long way since then. And he's in Pittsburgh, so we're kind of partial to him <laughs> in that way. Uh, but in his current role... At Oracle, he and his team focus on advising customer CISOs on security and compliance issues related to the cloud. And boy, I that is a big topic, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the cybersecurity in the cloud and compliance. And it's a subject that is near and dear to a lot of people, uh, and hopefully uh, you can, Sean, shed a lot more light on it than uh, others can. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, thank thank you for being here. So I, I got to ask, how how did you go from database admin to cybersecurity? <laughs> I mean, that's I, <laughs> that's a jump, man. You, you know, <laughs> right? Well, this is this is the part of the part of the podcast where I'm supposed to lie to the audience and say that I planned it all out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if you look at my resume, um, it actually does. There, there's some rhyme or reason to it. You know, I I started as a DBA, or at least there looks to be rhyme or reason. I started as a DBA at ExxonMobil, and then moved to the Department of the Interior, which actually regulated ExxonMobil to a certain extent. And okay. then I moved over to the Justice Department. That Department of the Interior was their customer or client. Um, you know, the reality is, is look, uh, I, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, I uh, was actually, a, have a humanities degree. So I'm, I'm an undergrad in, in uh, history um, and, I, and, I, and did my graduate work in education. Um, really? But I grew up in a house where technology was prevalent. Both my parents were data, uh, I'm sorry, network engineers. Uh, my mom for the army, my dad for uh, uh, some intelligence agencies, we'll say. And uh, so I, you know, I, I swore I would never do it, but I got into technology. I loved it. Um, my humanities degree actually served me well um, since I, I spent a lot of my day communicating uh, both in writing uh, uh, and orally. Um, but, you know, the, I saw the industry grow, right? You know, back when when I started in, in 2000, you know, and, and even heck, when I took over um, uh, uh, security at the University of Pittsburgh in 2012, um, cybersecurity was uh, still somewhat in its infancy, yeah. right? Um, it was still very much a network-focused um, occupation. Yep. Uh, some 80% of the people on my team at Pitt had network security in their title. Um, but, you know, I, I had the pleasure of... of Working in different size organizations in different parts of the technology stack, um, but always those parts that were the intersection of IT and the actual users and the business units, right? Um, and that's really where cybersecurity can do its best work, um, really in terms of enabling the businesses that they support. Um, so it just, you know, by happenstance, I learned all the skills I needed to eventually become a, uh, a successful CISO. Um, and then, you know, move on to Microsoft and now Oracle where, where I can, you know, share that, that work with others, you know, See, specifically, um, 
Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, finish your thought, please. No, and I, I was going to say, you know, how did I specifically make the jump from, because you see in my yeah. resume, I went from kind of the legal world to um, the, uh, over to the university to run their security yeah. program. For, for those that were in and around Pittsburgh in, in 2011, um, they would have known that the university was under a, a number of uh, threats, uh, specifically bomb threats from a foreign actor that actually shut the university down uh, during the weeks leading up to and including finals week. Um, the, the then U.S. attorney, uh, David Hickton, uh, activated the Joint Terrorism Task Force um, and uh, to help address these threats at Pitt. Um, and uh, uh, when I was CIO, I was CIO of a firm called Burns White Hickton. Okay. Um, so Dave and I had a relationship. Um, I helped Dave in the U.S. Attorney's Office with that case, and, and that's what really ultimately led for my transition into the university, which is just a, a great story. And, and it was the beginning of uh, Dave Hickton uh, getting the Justice Department at a national level really into the business of, of prosecuting cyber criminals, right? Um, and, and he had a, a, a long history of that, including you know the Chinese and the Russians um, and others, which is now the policy of our of our Justice Department going forward. Well, you know so what? Pretty and, cool. And I have a lot of questions on that. We're going to get to that specifically here. Okay. But that's a wonderful story. Uh, at multiple levels, because one of the things that you'll see, and for our listeners, if you go back to past episodes and watch, you'll see the diversity of backgrounds that CISOs and cybersecurity professionals come from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. we do uh, a lot of support with the veterans community. Uh, we, we hire a lot of veterans. We support them and making the transitions from military to civilian life. And I don't think uh, anyone should exclude themselves from a career in security. If they are genuinely looking to do it, there's an avenue by which it can be pursued. It's not confined to being a computer science major and coming from that that's, background. That's so true. That's, that's so true. We have so many slots open. Um, we need diverse skill sets and mindsets. Um, there is a place for everyone under this tent that is cybersecurity. Absolutely. Certainly. And having and there's very few cybersecurity professionals that have really, really good people skills. And I think as we look yeah. at cybersecurity programs develop, that's a key element of it because engaging the broader mm -hmm. population in an organization in defending the organization is a key part of cyber. And you have to have yeah. some skills to get people on that track. Absolutely. The future of cyber isn't in how good we are at operating the nerd knobs of the technology. It's how good we are at translating cyber risk into a language that the businesses we support can understand. That's where the rubber meets the road. You know what? That's You just gave us the title of this episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. That's what we're going to begin with. So let, let's, uh, let's start with the cloud. This is a big topic. Everyone mm -hmm. Uh, has a cloud first initiative and then they're talking and especially now with covid and remote work a lot of organizations that were on the bench with that are no longer on the bench with it they they were forced to make certain decisions but there is a difference between being in the cloud and being on the cloud and uh, there, there's a shared responsibility in cybersecurity. can you help uh there's a myth out there that if i am uh just subscribing to cloud-based services uh it's not it's all secure you know i don't have to what do i have to worry about help us break that yeah. down a little bit here yeah absolutely you know it, it it is a point of confusion for for many out there um and it doesn't help that you know there are multiple flavors of cloud 
right? right? Um, and so, so it can be confusing. So let me, let me sum it up uh, uh, and, and make it kind of easy for everyone. Yeah. No matter what flavor of cloud you as a customer are using, whether you're using software as a service, platform as a service, or infrastructure as a service, right? There are three things that you are always going to be responsible for, okay? okay. Um, and first is the, the security around the users that you are bringing to bear in that cloud, okay? okay. Um, now, that cloud provider may provide you tooling to help with that, um, but those identities are your responsibility. The second thing is the security of the devices that you are connecting to that cloud, okay? okay. That is always your responsibility, regardless of what flavor. Um, and then the last is the security around uh, the data that you use in that cloud. Now, that, that one's a little more confusing. I need to put a little asterisk next to it Please. because that cloud service is obviously going to have things like or should have things like encryption in place. Right. But the cloud service itself isn't going to know your crown jewels from your cookie recipes, right? right. And so you as a customer are going to be responsible for wrapping extra layers of security around your most important information, okay? So that holds true, true in, in all three flavors or three common flavors of, of, of public cloud. Um, where you can start to wrap your mind around, all right, beyond that, what, what's the difference from a security model uh, from SaaS, PaaS, and IaaS? And, and I have an analogy I, I like to use. Um, and it starts with actually on-prem. Okay. Uh, on-prem is your house. And when you own a house, you're responsible for everything, right? Yep. You're responsible for the yard. You're responsible for the picket fence around it. You're responsible for the four walls of your house, the roof, um, all the electricals inside, everything, right? As you move from uh, on-prem to infrastructure as a service, which is where you're peeling off a, a certain, the first levels of or layers and providing them over to the cloud security yeah. provider, specifically those around the physical layer, the data center, sure. the physical networking, the physical hardware. Think of that, that as, about a, as an apartment, okay. right? You, you are, um, the building is provided to you, the front door and the walkways and the mailboxes all provided, the hallways. Um, and when you get into your apartment, though, everything is up to you, right? You got to provide the furniture, hang the pictures on the walls, all that good stuff. Yep. That's infrastructure as a service. So you're just peeling off the initial layer to the service provider. The next layer is what we call platform as a service. These are things like, um, you know, Oracle's uh, autonomous database offering or Microsoft's SQL um, platform service, right? Um, this is where they're providing both the, the underlying infrastructure, physical infrastructure, as well as some of the application plumbing, right? Sure. And to me, that's more like a, a furnished apartment, right? So I've, I've, you know, it's still that same model, but I'm giving even more responsibility over to the cloud service provider. The last piece, software as a service, is like the hotel, right? You just kind of show up, um, you decide what you want to put on TV, you got to throw some clothes in the drawer and keep yourself showered, but everything else around you is, is taken care of. Um, uh, and, and those are kind of good analogies because ultimately in all three of those models, you know, the cloud service provider is essentially um, patrolling the hallways of those buildings um, uh, and it's going to leave you to do inside your apartment or your hotel room what you see fit unless what you're doing in your apartment or your hotel room kind of spills out into the yeah. hallway and starts to impact the other guests, right? Um, so that, that's how I like to think it's about a, cloud and that's how I like to think about cloud responsibility. That, that's a very good analogy because in all three of those cases, who knocks on your door and who you let in is completely up mm -hmm. to you. Right. So getting right. back to securing right. the identity, um, that's that's yours to contend with. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah. 
And if you're leaving your data open in your hotel room and somebody walks in and the cleaning service picks it up, well, that's on you. You should have put it in the safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and it is a big mind shift um, because we, we, like I mentioned, when we kind of did the introduction there, you know, security grew out of the network control plane because that was the control plane that security could glom onto. And so if you had, you know, a security problem, you know, it started with firewalls and IDS and IPS. And if you had a data problem, you got a network based DLP appliance, like it was all network centric, but you know, the, the world of, of, you know, the digital estate that we're helping to secure um, lives outside the four walls of our network. And so, um, you know, the, the network heavy approaches aren't as useful and the identity heavy approaches become that much more important in cloud, um, namely because those interfaces are largely open, open to the internet, right? Uh, because uh, of the nature of cloud. Uh, Absolutely. The perimeter, the traditional perimeter has been completely obliterated, right? Everything it used to yes. be behind our firewall and we're controlling that entire experience. Now the perimeter is out there and it's not completely in our control, but it doesn't uh, alleviate the responsibility of securing that information. So for example, um, let, let's say uh, you're using uh, Box, Dropbox, or using Microsoft's uh, shared drive, whatever it may be. If your data, if your intellectual property gets exfiltrated from those environments, uh, from what I have seen in the contract language on all three, those cloud providers are not responsible for your IP. Right, because it lives in, well, it yes, it, generally speaking, because it, it lives in your, the security of that data lives in your area of responsibility, right? Um, now, if, if that data were compromised through some failure of uh, the cloud service provider's uh, obligations on, on their end, right? It was compromised at a service level, um, you know, that would, that would be a different story. But those aren't, that's not what we're seeing out there. What we see out there is, is that customer tenancies get popped by bad actors um, because of, uh, uh, you know, poor configuration, whether that be in terms of uh, kind of identity and access management um, or in terms of, you know, information protection. Um, so, you know, either not not gating it properly um, or not having the right protections around around the information. So that way they're they're properly protected. Not having... and, and really the secret sauce is the, the combination of the two plus layering on a, a proper kind of threat detection strategy to, to monitor it all. Yep. And I would imagine putting in some kind of DLP or CASB is a part of that equation as well if you're worried about exfiltration of information. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, so there's, um, you know, the zero trust and SASE are two terms that are thrown out there quite yeah. often. I, If you could yeah. enlighten our listeners a little bit, what's the difference between the two? Is this just like a Forrester Gartner thing or is, is there... Uh, <sighs> Is there <laughs> is there a substantial yeah, difference well, here? What's uh... <laughs> there, there is and there isn't, right? So uh, so yes, I mean, through you know, zero trust is championed by Forrester, specifically by Chase Cunningham, a great guy over at Forrester. Um, uh, Sassy is uh, a reboot of an older concept from out of, out of Gartner. Um, you know, uh, they they both are trying to address the same thing though, 
right? And, and essentially, it's the, the problem set that we've been talking about, right? It's this digital estate uh, that expands outside the network perimeter, um, and that really brings the data to the users where they are on whatever devices they want to be using, right? And this is the modern working environment uh, that security professionals find themselves in today. Um, the, the big, uh, I'd say the big differentiator between the two is zero trust tends to focus less so on network-based controls. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly network companies will, will have a, an offering of, of a zero trust flavor, um, but identity plays a lot here and there. Um, controlling all the pieces of the puzzle, so the endpoint, the users that are accessing those endpoints and the cloud services, the telemetry around both devices and the users and their health, feeding into what data they're trying to access, what level they need to um, uh, have assurance uh, of both identity and device health to access any given resource is much more important in that zero trust model. SASE focuses, you know, zero trust to a SASE person is a subset, right? Okay. Uh, they say zero trust is important to do, but the other thing we need to do is we need to extend the network out to the users. So SASE is both about security um, and using a lot more network-based security controls because SASE is also about connectivity, right? And making sure that those users have um, adequate bandwidth to be running these applications remotely, right? Um, and so if you're, if you're focused on that in the SASE world, then it makes much more sense to um, uh, also include a lot of your security controls to be around the network because you've taken care to extend that network all the way to the users. Whereas a zero trust model would say, I don't care what network you use, open internet, that's fine, um, because I'm controlling the endpoint, I'm controlling the device, I'm controlling the data that they're getting to, I can make sure the tunnel in between is secure. Um, I don't think, that all, all that said, I don't think companies need to get too worried about, are we a sassy shop or are we a zero trust shop, right? Thank because ultimately, <laughs> both of them, yeah, both of them are security uh, strategies to tackle this modern world. So take what works for your organization um, uh, and, 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 and use that, right? And, and, and don't get just caught up in, 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 in the lingo and, um, um, and also challenge your vendors too, right? Zero trust has had uh, a little more time in market uh, you know, I remember before RSA shut down, uh, uh, not, you know, not shut down, yeah. but, you know, before it went all right. virtual. And, you know, I, I was at RSA when Corona first came into, into the U.S. Uh, back in 2020, it would have been. Um, but, you know, zero trust, every vendor on the floor was all about zero trust, right? Um, uh, you know, if when we go back in person, whenever that happens to be, you're going to see a lot more SaaS in there. So it is gaining traction. And so I think you will hear more about that and you'll the vendors that have traditionally spoken in a zero trust or through a zero trust lens um, will now also start complementing that with with a kind of a, a sassy talk track or in reference architectures as well. Okay, so um, from a company and see a lot of our listeners, there's a lot of small businesses. And when I say small businesses, okay. those employees, uh, those uh, organizations that have less than 2000 employees, okay? okay? When they are trying to implement sassy or zero trust there's if you read all the literature on it there's no way they can implement every single darn thing that that's part of it it would be cost prohibitive mm -hmm. to do what are some of the fundamentals that you would suggest yeah. to these organizations to prioritize tackling first yeah it's it's it is 
all about it starts with identity health that's that's thing number one if you if you don't have your identity estate in order and what i mean by that for these organizations is that if you don't have a what we would have called like 10 years ago a single sign-on strategy um uh you know you you really need to start there um mm -hmm. because in this cloud world um uh identity is the perimeter identity is key right so that's thing and and for a zero trust strategy identity is what you're building on so that's thing number one um part of that thing number one is you know making sure that not only are you is your organization using a single identity to authenticate to the myriad of services that your users use both on-prem and in the cloud um but that you're also uh, 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 wrapping levels of assurance around those identities. So using things like multi-factor, whether you use it in an always-on fashion or you use it in a more risk-based approach, um, uh, either way, um, it needs to be part of your strategy, right? Um, and so that's key, and, and that is thing number one. Okay. Um, once I've worked on that, or while I'm working on that, the second thing that's going to be super important um, is device health. Okay. okay? Um, and, uh, because, you know, we, we, the, we live in this distributed work world now yeah. because of COVID and, and that cat is not going back in the bag, right? right. Um, not... Even when workers nope. return to uh, the office, um, they're going to demand that fifth day a week from home, or they're going to demand to go to grandma's house in Tennessee and be able to work there that week. And, you know, the, the, the flexibility they have now is, is, is not going to go away. So we need to make sure that we can ensure the trustworthiness of the devices they're connecting from um, and or limit the what they have access to based on the device they're coming from. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, managed versus unmanaged. Um, so that's, that's where you focus number two. Okay? okay. Once you've gotten those two things done, then you can start adding on number three, which is really um, more robustness around your, your data protection strategies. Okay. okay. That's not to say I don't care about data protection while I'm doing one and two. It's just, I, I've got to, I've got to, you know, you know, uh, I, I've got to walk before I can run. Right. Um, um, and, and so those would, those would be the order I would, I would focus on. And, and what data protection looks like is things like data classification, things like data masking, you know, uh, data protection above and beyond, you know, standard encryption at rest and in a transit, right? Okay. To me, those are just table stakes and a given. Right. Um, and I assumed those all along. That's fantastic practical advice. And uh, all you folks listening out there, go back and evaluate your organizations against what Sean just said, uh, because uh, it, it's critical. And those are the foundations of building a fantastic cybersecurity program. One thing um, in, in this arena of managing identities, especially with BYOD becoming as prevalent as it has, is what is the role of MDM or where, what, you know, do you see pushback in the CISOs that you consult with their organizations? Do they, do they encounter pushback in deploying MDM on BYOD devices? Because the end user is giving over personal control of what is an asset owned by them. To the company that they work yeah with. yeah you know uh, the first thing i'll say and i'll steal a line from uh brett who was the CISO of my previous organization the CISO at microsoft and he used to always say i don't even have enough time to read my own email let alone <laughs> yours right, right. <laughs> um and and you know the the kind of flippant comment there the the point is is that um uh you know 
the the organization's interest isn't in you know looking at uh, pictures on your phone. The organization's interest in is protecting corporate assets that also reside on that phone. Um, and and so for organizations that determine that MDM is the way that they're going to do that, what's key for them is um, make sure that they have the the proper policies and uh, related procedures in place to protect personal information that also lives on those devices, right? Um, and so what you know, how do you define corporate versus personal information, and and how will that personal information not be used um, in in the corporate environment, and what will occur on that personal device um, if there is compromise, right? Um, you know, aka that whole device potentially gets wiped and and that personal information is lost. Um, so so that's thing number one uh, around MDM. The other thing is, is that organizations can evaluate strategies that don't include full-blown MDM, okay. right? Uh, there is technology known as mobile application management, um, which containerizes corporate information in specific applications on the device uh, based on the user's identity. So they can actually have both personal and private information in the same app. I'm talking your email apps and your productivity apps. Um, and, and for some organizations, that protection is enough for um, uh, for for those BYOD scenarios, right? Um, and 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 therefore limits um, kind of the spread of that corporate information to only those areas that uh, is protected. Note that I'm I'm not talking about containerization, um, uh, which is a kind of older technology. I'm talking more about um, uh, you know either going full blown MDM. Or kind of meet in the middle with with mobile application management, and and those are the two prevalent choices that that organizations have. What, what I found from a user perspective, though, is if you clearly outline what protections my personal information has, even if you're managing a device, okay. aka you're not going to use my browser history against me in the workplace, um, uh, and I understand what benefit I get by wiring up that personal device, aka flexibility and the ability to work remotely from a single device and not have to carry around two, then most most organizations, I mean, most users in organizations are gonna are gonna make that choice and and be like, yeah, this is what I need to do to get my job done, right? So well, you you know, um, it opens up a can of worms from a compliance perspective, right? So whether you're writing mm -hmm. policies for your SOC two or uh, high trust or HIPAA or the case may be, uh, when you introduce personal devices and it's a big can of worms. I really like what you're suggesting with mobile application management because it avoids some of the the sticky topics that occur. Um, you know, we see like a, a typical use case we see a lot in healthcare is with it's not supposed to be, but oftentimes uh, there might be patient information that is sent to a physician and it lands on their personal mm -hmm. phone. Like with radiology, you see Absolutely. it all the time. X-rays or MRIs can go on the radiologist's phone and they can look at it and they can respond, which is great because the time to respond goes way down and uh, the quality of service goes up. But then there's the data is sitting on someone's personal device. And yeah, yeah. And it could. Yeah, well, and, and that's, you know, that brings up a, a second point that's, I think, related. Right. So where it starts is at an organizational level. That the organization has to think, you know, what are the risks I'm trying to pr protect against? And they need to remember that too much friction is also a risk, right? Because let's go back to those physicians. Um, uh, you know, I remember being in, in a, and I, I won't name the hospital, but I remember being in a hospital looking over the shoulder of a physician 
who was using his personal phone to take picture of information on his work-based phone to text it to another physician um, because it was just too cumbersome and yeah. complicated to use the quote-unquote secure systems on that corporate device, right? Yep. Um, users are like water. They will find the path of least resistance to get their job done. They're not trying to be a pain. They're just trying to get their job done. They're not security people, right? So it's our job as security people to give them pathways to get it done and get it done securely at the same time, right? Um, and so that takes an organization understanding, you know, what is the important information? How do our users work with it? Um, and how do we facilitate those avenues with a strategy um, that allows us to balance, um, you know, our compliance obligations, our security obligations, and the productivity obligations that we have to our workforce. Well, that right there was worth the price of admission. <laughs> I hope our, our – uh listeners here especially you know 20 percent of our customer base is from healthcare that they're the, those who okay. listen in uh heard that advice and that that's just solid uh one thing that we say in conjunction with that is oftentimes sean what we have found is in the like in the case of the physician i bet no one from their security teams actually sat down with those people and explained the why behind things and by and large, that's where we see the wheels fall off the bus. A lot of people are very reasonable. If you explain to them the why behind the policy, why something, and it can't just be, well, it's not in HIPAA compliance. And I can tell you that's going to be the story of water following the path of least resistance. But if they are genuinely told the realities of the risk that it presents, then people are generally reasonable. They're apt to follow directions. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I would say to that point, and let's stick with healthcare as the example, if you want to make it real for a physician or any clinician, right, nurses, all of them as well, um, bring it back to patient safety. Explain to that person why what they're doing could impact patient safety in terms of, you know, the confidentiality of their information, in terms of the integrity of that information, yeah. or even the availability, right, because we live in a day of ransomware of that information. That's going to hit home with, with that clinician. The other thing, though, that – and this is on the security departments. You said I bet the, they never sat down and explained to that physician why it was important. Yep. What I also bet they haven't done is sat down with that physician to understand what they do on a daily basis um, and why quick and immediate access to these records is also important to them. It's a two-way street, right? Um, we need to make sure we fully, as security professionals, we fully understand the businesses that, that we are trying to enable with security. And that, sir, is the business side of security. It's the human side of security. And it's something mm -hmm. that I give our industry pretty low grades on in general. That's just my opinion. It's yeah. not my company's opinion, but it's my personal opinion from what I've seen um, that uh, we just don't. Uh, you know, we're often uh, – turning knobs in a dark room somewhere and and that's what people see as cybersecurity and and it's a people problem. Yeah. It's a business problem. It's it is a, it is a people problem and and I think the other problem there too is is that uh uh you know we as security professionals take on a level of ownership of the problem that I that I don't think many understand and appreciate and that burden of keeping your organization secure um is a big one. Right. And, and so it tends to turn us into Dr. No. Right. Yeah. Um, or the team that put the no in technology. Yeah. Right. Um, because we just become so darn risk averse. But what we forget when we do that is, is that 
the burden of the security of our organization doesn't actually live on our shoulders. It actually lives on the business's shoulders. It's our job to consult with the business, advise them of that risk, um, and allow them to accept, uh, mitigate, transfer, you know, all the, all the things that you can do with risk. Ultimately, that's cybersecurity's job. Um, and the risk that they choose to mitigate, you know, we, we may implement and run those tools as well, depending on, you know, the governance structure of your security org. But, but that's our role. Our, our role isn't just to carry that weight on our shoulders day in and day out. Uh, and I think that's important to remember. So, Sean, let me ask you uh, a question here in terms of structures of our security teams. <laughs> do you think it would make sense to pull the CISO out underneath this from the CIO <laughs> and put them in a separate totally parallel yeah. lane i and i'll tell you I, and for our listeners i'll just say it i i think that it is a conflict of interest there because uh, someone that's paying your paycheck uh, and you are called on to critique the environment that they are responsible for i think becomes a very heavy lift uh in some yeah. instances so that's mine yeah. but I'd, I'd love to get someone who your opinion who knows a lot more about this topic than i do <laughs> yeah, you know, and I've seen it. I've seen it done a lot of different ways. Um, you know, and so therefore, I do have to give the consulting answer of it depends. Okay, um, but I'll tell you why I say that. I'll tell you why I say that. Okay. So, um, it depends on the maturity of the organization. Okay. okay. Um, and it also depends on what it is that the CISO's office is going to do. Okay. Um, so. Uh, if you uh, are going to both be a governance organization. Um, and an operational organization, um, it often makes sense for the CISO to still report in under the CIO uh, for the economies of scale of, of, of systems that the, the CISO is using, okay. right? Because they're riding on that CIO. They're, they're both creating the rules and enforcing the rules at the same time, right? Um, and, and what I've seen in organizations where the the CISO has that operational responsibility and reports separately from the CIO's office is that you have a buildup of duplicative technology um, on in both stacks, right? Um, now, in an ideal world, if that CIO and CISO could work together, kumbaya, hand in hand, that wouldn't happen. And so that reporting structure of them being peers would work. But in reality, you end up with two competing technology organizations. And, and so you can end up with competing spend. That's the downside. Now, if you are a governance-only CISO and then you're relying on the CIO's team to implement, then it absolutely you have to be a peer of the CISO um, in, in somewhere else reporting, you know, in the or whether it's reporting in through legal, uh, reporting in through risk, which is where you know in the in FinSer where a lot of a lot of CISOs report into, um, then it then it makes a lot more sense and and you can still have some monitoring function, um, but just not necessarily the enforcement functions. I'm in, in the CISO's office. And so for those organizations, um, yeah, I, yeah, I see that separate reporting structure is super important. Um, you know, ultimately it, it's about organizations looking at, you know, what they're trying to accomplish, uh, what's the current structure and what's the ideal structure um, uh, and, and kind of road mapping out um, where, where they want to go. But the CIO and the CISO have to do it together, whether uh, uh, they, uh, one reports into the other or, or their peers. When I was at Pitt, you know, the CIO, she was my boss, um, uh, from a, you know, performance review perspective. Okay. Um, but when it came to matters of security, you know, we very much had the understanding that it couldn't be the Fox guarding the hen house. Um, and that I had to have the authority, um, to step out 
um, and and contradict her or or her own her own team, my other peers um, in matters of security. So in, in that respect, at that leadership table, um, I was separate. Right. I was the only one that had a C in addition to the CIO. But, right. At that leadership table. Um, and that was an important distinction to make for our organization uh, to propel the security of the university forward. But you know what? That's a cultural thing, too. If the company's culture is set yeah. up to where they will permit such a discourse, uh, I know uh, in a lot of organizations that just may not be the case where you cannot contradict. Yeah. You know, that's not going to yeah. happen. And I've seen and I see it a lot actually more on cloud where I see the person who's in charge of cloud security is also in charge of like the DevOps team. And I'm like, whoa, that's a huge conflict of interest, right? <laughs> you know, the speed at which we roll things out and the way in which we secure them is on the same hat, right? That, you know, it, you know, it's one, if that person is monitoring the security, it's two, if they're setting the security policy as well. Um, that, that's where you can get yourself into trouble. So let, let's talk about, since you brought up cloud, let's circle back to that and hit yeah. on multi-cloud and hybrid cloud. Yeah. And, and how do you secure a multi-cloud hybrid cloud environment? What, right. Give us some right. thoughts there. Yeah, well, you know, the first thing I'll say is that I that every organization I talk to, almost every organization, says they have a multi-cloud strategy. Um, in in reality, uh, um, you know, they they tend to have a a primary IaaS and PaaS provider, and then a bunch of SaaS services. Right. That's okay. what they mean by multi-cloud. That's not actually multi-cloud. Right. Okay. That's that's, you know, all your eggs in, in, in one basket um, plus some SaaS. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, you know, and so, you know, what I spend a lot of time now doing is, is how do you operationalize a true multi-cloud where you have two or three or four tier one cloud providers, public cloud providers in your portfolio um, and you're leveraging those cloud assets um, and those cloud providers for their for their various strengths, right? Um, what that takes from a security perspective um, is ensuring that the one ensuring that that cloud provider is going to work with you to tell you what are the pipes that you need to plumb to securely operate their environment. Okay, okay. Um, and that is incumbent on the cloud provider to help you do that. And and I don't see it happening as often as as it should. Um, also, ideally. Um, depending on the investment that you're making in that public cloud provider, they they should be helping you do some level of that work as well, right? Um, you know, where, where I am today, we work with customers in a, um, a maturity acceleration program okay. where we help customers do 11 key steps um, uh, toward cloud maturity with our own cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. Things like, you know, ensuring that they're using centralized identity and they've got their IAM roles defined. Ensuring that their SIM is wired up, regardless of what SIM they're working with, um, um, and, and, and steps like that, ensuring that fast connect or the network is extended in a secure way down to their on-prem hybrid environment. Um, uh, so going through all those steps with them, so that way, step one is ensuring that you're secure in the cloud that you're, you know, cloud number one, right? Right. Um, and you need to do that across all of your clouds, right? Um, and then the challenge becomes. How do you normalize all that information, right? Um, and and quite frankly, I've seen different organizations do it different ways, right? Um, if you are cons if you choose to normalize that information by just consuming all the dashboards directly from each cloud provider as they provide them, then then what you're going to end up with is a, a security team that specializes in each individual cloud, yes. right? That's um, expensive. And, and that often, 
that is super expensive. That is, that is very expensive. expensive. But okay. yes, and and so what we advocate is 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 not necessarily going that route, but let's use the tooling, the native tooling from the cloud providers, um, and plumb that into a common set of tools um, that that your organization is using to manage its hybrid environment, right? Um, and so oftentimes that will be your sim. Um, and, and your SOAR. Yep. Um, so you know to do just not event incident and event management, but also you know orchestration and automation on top of that um, uh, to provide those initial layers, um, and uh, also working to ensure that you know at the endpoint, whether you're talking endpoint connecting to the cloud um, or endpoint running in the cloud, that you have a common set of visibility there as well. Um, uh, and, and so that way you can, in essence, manage your, your clouds from a, a single pane of glass. But to do that means you have to do all that plumbing work, right? Um, and, 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 and have your cloud provider help you with that plumbing work. Because the complexity in cloud is, is from a conceptual level, all the clouds kind of operate the same. But from a, in practice and a nomenclature perspective, you know, I at Oracle could be, you know, talking about something with one of my colleagues from Microsoft. And we're talking about the same thing, but we call it two different sure. things. You know, we're in the industry, so we're 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 used to translating, um, but our, our customers aren't, right? Um, and so they rely on each individual cloud provider to help them with that nomenclature and help them understand what that security best practice is. Um, you know, sadly, what what often ends up happening when customers are trying to go after these multi-cloud strategies is a cloud provider may give them a whole bunch of tools but not instructions on how to use them, right? Yeah. Um, and if that's the case, then what I would advise those customers to do is work with a good partner that can to show you how to use that toolbox, right? Or or how to how to take all those Legos and build a damn house. That's right. Um, as opposed to just have a bunch of Legos. Yeah, I, um, we, see know, so to, <sighs> we see yeah. that so often. We see that all the time. Yeah. That you they get they dr drop them. The tools are dropped off at the shipping dock in the back, and now people are trying to figure out what to do with it, and it's a real problem. It's, yeah, yeah, it, it it really is. It really is. And and you know more and more I see. You know I know it's our strategy at Oracle is to you know to not just provide the security but provide prescriptive security for customers and provide programs that help wire customers up with you know with the, our accelerator program um, for maturity. But um, uh, you know at the end of the day, you know it's really the customer needs to. Um, uh, install the plumbing and then monitor accordingly, right? Yeah, that and so let me ask you on the accelerator program at Oracle, is this something mm -hmm. that is offered as a standard offering with every cloud service that you bring to your customers or is this something specialized that's part of the implementation team? Just curious on Yeah, this is this is more on the implementation side. I mean, we certainly make the so you know, we start at a at a at a platform layer and ensuring that we have uh, you know, the the security, you know, really baked into everything we do all the way down to, you know, the hardware root of trust. Um, and then in terms of our cloud services, you know, uh, it's it's not just you have the security option, it's that security option is on by default, right? Um, so we try to protect the customers out of out of the box. Um, the next layer is, okay, I'm, I'm building workloads. Um, how do I do them securely, right? And so what we did is we worked with, with Center for Internet Security to come up with benchmarks for OCI and then turn those benchmarks into uh, landing zones, right? Um, so customers can can organize their, their architectures against these landing zones um, and, and actually use them to, to, to 
build out a, a secure architecture. We just launched actually this week v2 of that OCI uh, landing zone based on those CIS benchmarks. For some customers, we then take it a step further um, and we'll actually bring in my team uh, as field CISOs to advise them on uh, their maturity against our, our own programs, um, but, but also anything related to our cloud. Um, and, but specifically to that maturity program, what we'll do with those customers is, is in many cases, we'll bring the resources to bear to help them, um, uh, help them plumb their SIM as an example, or help them deploy FastConnect. Um, you know, our level of investment in, in customers in those scenarios is, is going to uh, obviously be based on those those customers' level of investment in us. Um, and so it's a, a bit of a give and take, you know, because we're, we're making investment there. But we, we you know, we feel strongly that that investment is important um, because, you know, our customers using our, our platform securely um, is, is key to the future of customers using our platform, right? Um, customers, you know, when there's a, a, a blip in the news related to security, I can look at it and understand like, oh, that was on the customer side of the cloud responsibility manual, right? right? Um, the customer doesn't care as much about no, that. No, they don't. Right? They just know I they mean, got hit. You know, they just know their house is on fire or, or their apartment or their hotel room is on fire and they want help, right? Um, and, and so, you know, we, we try to prevent the fire from happening in the first place. Um, but when when they do break out, you know, we, we want to limit the blast radius. Exactly. Um, so that's what our programs really focus on. So let's talk about ransomware because that is part of that, creating this blast yes. radius. <laughs> so yes. and it's been in the news all over the place. And I hear a lot of people in Washington give a lot of useless information about it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I, I think, though, at a policy level. Is there things that in your mind could be done? Is is there a legislative solution to this, really? I think there there can be. Um, here here's what needs to happen. So the thing that's important to understand about the ransomware that we're seeing today, I, I tend to refer to it as human operated ransomware. Okay. Because okay, yep. it differs from the crypto locker days, which was really kind of uh, spray and pray ransomware, right? right? Um, that was limited to single single machines or single systems. Right. Um, what we have today is uh, determined adversaries yep. using uh, advanced persistent threat techniques yep. um, uh, to get into organizations, um, l locate crown jewels, lay in wait, and and execute their mission uh, encryption at an at an opportune time in order to force a specific outcome. And that specific outcome is payment. Yep. Okay, it's a business model. It's, a, it's cash. Out. That's but that's a good thing because yes, it, it that yes. you know well, the that intent is a good thing in the sense that you, you know the you, intent. You know the intent, and 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 the even though they're using what I what I call advanced persistent techniques, they're using like whole you know sides of buildings are missing that they're walking in through. Right, absolutely. You know, one of the most common. One of the most common ways that these actors are getting in is through unsecured uh, RDP and SSH ports open to the internet, right? Like what? Uh, or, or using known vulnerabilities that have had patches out for 30 plus days uh, to get into these organizations, right? Um, and so where, uh, uh, yes, once they get into the organization, they're doing all kinds of complex and cool things to, to work stealthily. But you know, from a prevention perspective, there, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit we can be doing from a hygiene perspective to help out with the issue um, and force them on to other customers um, that have 
that are easier targets. Because again, they're a business model, so they're gonna they're gonna go after lower hanging fruit every time. Um, and so where a government can help is to help by coming up with a unified national standard in the case of the United States, as opposed to the state by state approach that we've seen to date. Now, that said, that unified national standard needs to focus on the lowest common denominator, needs to be simplified, needs to look more like something like the CIS's critical security controls, yep. you know, what used to be known formally as the SANS top 20, yep. right? Something like that needs to be put into place as opposed to uh, maybe something as big and lofty as you know, GDPR, if we're, gonna, if we're really focused on solving the ransomware problem right now. That would do it. Establishing that baseline across the nation would really help to do it and would give these organizations a roadmap of what they need to tackle. Because what I, what I feel, and it's not just based on feeling, because it's, it's what I've seen in talking with customers, is that for many of them, there's still like a, a lack of understanding of what the actual problem is and, and how these bad actors are getting in. And, and you know, you know, they're equating solar winds, which was a nation state right. going after intelligence operations with these ransomware and, and the news isn't helping because the news is like well you know well, they don't know it. it's like well cyber criminal versus you know yeah. nation state like don't get don't worry about that worry about the the way these actors are actually getting into your organization and it's through really stupid baseline hygiene stuff that they're generally getting in through the organization now once you've once you've shored up those then you can start focusing on, you know, because the other interesting things that they're doing is once they get in, they tend to turn off security controls to hide their movements, right? Yeah. So next step in maturity after you've closed the front door and put a deadbolt <laughs> on it is, okay, let's look at monitoring when my security controls get off, turned off. That should throw in an alert because that means there might be a bad guy traversing my network. Sure. So, you know, there's certainly lots of other things we can do, but it, it really starts with the basics. That's right. Change the default password on your Oracle databases. And I know there's listeners out there whose companies still have default passwords in there. So that's... Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. It's those basics. And when it comes to nation state, it's something that I, I don't know that you're going to stop 5,000 PhDs who are working on ways to compromise a system. To That's not a a worry that is addressable quite easily you know but doing yeah, the that's basic where, i mean i i would worry yeah in, in, in a nation state example it's, it's more about detection than it is about protection that's right for these these ransomware scenarios there is a strong protective strategy that can yes. prevent uh many of the instances that we have seen um before it even gets to our detective but you know what we can't uh, a lot of companies struggle with the basics of vulnerability management right we we don't <laughs> yeah. we, we we don't we can't seem to get that right so getting the and that's part of the basics yeah well i i take it back a step further uh uh back in 2019 uh, at the rsa conference they had this like uh, uh innovation sandbox award that happens the first couple days um in 2019, the winner of the Innovation Sandbox was an asset management company. Really? What, what does that tell you? That tells you that you know, we're, we're failing all the way at the most basics of knowing what assets we have. And this is where cloud comes in. Because you know, if you want to take a very cynical view of cloud, uh, there's one thing that cloud service providers are great at. We never fall down on, on telling you what assets you have because we charge you for those assets. Right. Right. So it's in our um, best interest to uh, and, tell and, you what that is. Yeah. Yeah. And so your ability to see your assets and deploy security controls to those assets and understand when those security 
controls uh, where that baseline deviates on those assets, it's so much simpler to do in cloud. You're able to do it at a scale that you could never do on-prem. So that's just a another kind of feather in the in the cap for cloud. But but yeah, I mean, it, it really is, you know, the, the most basic stuff. At, at Microsoft, I worked on a project that's still ongoing with um, NIST um, and their National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence around, you know, how do we help organizations move their patching strategy forward, right? How do we help solve a 20-year-old right. problem? Um, and, 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 you know, it, yes, it does start with a foundational asset management issue, um, but building on from there, it also starts, it includes understanding the way modern patches work. Um, you know, we have this legacy mindset of, you know, we need to test every patch in every environment six ways to Sunday before we can roll out. Um, patches aren't built the way they used to be. You don't hear about or, or see, you know, these patches bricking systems like they, they used to do. Um, you know, patches for critical security vulnerabilities, it, it, it shouldn't be a, a matter of, of the risk of, well, it should be a matter, excuse me, uh, you know, the risk of the testing time versus the risk of exposure of the security vulnerability you're patching for um, needs to weigh into the equation. So a lot of these organizations really need to stop kicking the can down the road. Um, the other issue, though, there is, let's face it, patch management, vulnerability management, asset management, it's not sexy. No, it's right? not. It's not. It's not managed detection and response. It's not SIM as a service right. offerings. It's not, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, it's hygiene. It's basics. But um, it's important. Um, and it's what's going to get you popped, right? Um, uh, nine times out of ten, it's what's going to get you popped if you don't do it right. So it needs to be invested in. And, you know, um that's that's absolutely correct and and I hope uh, people take heed to that and and really vulnerability management it's uh, it's a key area and it's one that people can work on a lot of the tools are already there it's just making the necessary efforts inside the organization to make it a very high priority and execute mm -hmm. it well so we are already Agreed. at the hour and I want to give wow. you a chance to plug anything you'd like to any appearances talks things that you're going to be doing anything you'd like to let our audience know about and um, please. I know, you know, I, I appreciate that. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, you know, if this was a year ago, pre COVID, you know, we'd be talking about a lot more speaking appearances and, and things like that. But, you know, I'm pretty head down on the work that I'm, I'm doing over at Oracle and, and working with our customers and onboarding them to our cloud in a, in a secure fashion. So, you know, the, what I want to plug here is, is the advice that I'm, I'm kind of espousing because it's, it's the advice I live by, right? It's, it's what, it's what I told my customers at Microsoft. It's what I tell my customers now at Oracle. Um, and it's what we as a community need to be following. So to me, that's what's most important. Um, you know, I'll be sure to come back when, you know, when my next book comes out. And Please. We can, we can talk about some other would love cool to have you. topics. And I'll plug that at the time, right? Absolutely. Would love to have you back then. We would. That would be fantastic. Uh, just last uh, week, we had Michelle Walker on who wrote uh, You Are What You Risk. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. And so... But put a book out there would would be great to have you here back here, Sean. Love it, love it. I will definitely do that. And Sean, thank you so much. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. And uh, if people want to reach out to you, is your LinkedIn profile the best place we should have them message you? Yeah, yeah. You know what? We can. It's uh, post production. We'll we'll throw up the uh, the kind of the URL for that, and folks can reach out to me that way. That'd be the the best starting point. That's great. I'll put that in the show notes. We'll make sure it's there. And uh, Sean, again, okay. thank you so much. I uh, appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation and great advice. 
Thank you. I appreciate it as well. I've enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you.